With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, this is Gerard Fox, and the verdict is in. I have a really special guest, again, GCs, business owners, law students, law professors, all of you should be listening up. This is one of the most amazing podcasts where you get to listen to all types of lawyers talking about all types of law. And at the end of this, we're going to ask you to please email me at gfox at gerardfoxlaw.com any question you want answered on the next segment of the show. All right. I have Alan Rooney. Alan, delightful to have you on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Jerry, and for the lovely introduction. Yes. Now, Alan is a graduate of the Edinburgh University Law School in Scotland. So we get to talk to somebody who uh, is not just a person who's practiced law or lived in the U.S. We're listening to talking to somebody from Scotland, where he graduated with honors. He also studied at the University of Texas Law School in Austin, Texas. Upon relocating to New York, Alan worked as a commodities trader before beginning his legal career at Deloitte & Touche, LLP. At Deloitte, his practice concentrated on international tax and compensation issues and securities-related matters, advising several Fortune 50 companies. He later worked at a boutique commercial litigation corporate firm representing corporate clients. With the backing of his clients, Allen founded his own firm in 2007 and attributes its growth to its commitment to providing the highest possible level of client service, coupled with sophisticated business-focused legal advice. Now, Allen, you have been in a lot of different places, and uh, let's first, what is the actual name of your current law firm that you founded, and where is it based? Well, Jerry, thanks for asking. We are uh, we have a center in New York. We have some lawyers in California, but the New York office is larger. And in London, we have an office, and we also have an office in Edinburgh, dear old Edinburgh, which is in my native Scotland, uh, where my partner John Nemo is based. So the firm's name is Rooney Nemo. It wasn't always that way. I hung out a shingle as a solo, did a merger with John's firm around... It must be five plus years ago now. So it's now Rooney Nemo PC is the name of the firm. Now, this is very interesting. You're the first lawyer that's been a guest who's dealt with international clients. Let's talk about that because um, our firm handles international clients too. And there are a lot of issues that are very unique. So let's get your take on um, what are some of the issues that clients who are outside the U.S. are, are raising or looking for when they're hiring a U.S. lawyer? You know, one of the niches we actually sit in is we get a lot of inbound work from overseas. A lot of companies that are scaling or even already quite established are looking at the U.S. market. Two main reasons. Amazing market, which is large and also very open for business and commercially open. And also access to capital. If you're talking about the technology crowd, a lot of them are looking for venture capital and other types of fundraising. And that's another reason they look towards the U.S. And I think, you know, talking about issues... That's the sort of positive of it. I think they also have some hesitancy and worry when they think about things like 
US litigation and how can I go wrong and US tax and the US government has a pretty good reputation for being fairly fierce if it decides to, you know, try and find something wrong or go after a client for something. So, you know, I think there's there's definitely a two-edged sword when they when they're looking at the US market. And but we deal with cross-border clients and cross-border matters all the time. And so, you know, we're pretty comfortable uh, picking up the phone to the lawyer that we need in Rio or Sao Paulo or somewhere in Europe or in the Middle East. And and we actually have partnerships with some Asian offices in Hong Kong and in Shenzhen and in Beijing in, in the PRC. Now, my experience has been that clients from other countries are used to mediation, self-resolution, or a quicker jurisprudence uh, system, and that when they get caught up in long, protracted, expensive litigation in the U.S., that that's a real surprise for them, no matter how forewarned. Have you found something similar to that? Yeah, for sure. I think there's some amazement at a few things. I think that lawyers are a little bit more involved in commerce here in the U.S., than the Europeans particularly are used to. They may have a business and interact with their lawyer seldom, whereas I think guys like you and me, Jerry, we really value being integral advisors to our clients and we're people that they call for on a lot of decisions. It may not even be strictly legal. They may be looking for our business view on something as well. When we look at these things and the clients are looking at the US market, in some ways they need a guide. And like all lawyers, you'll try as best you can to keep clients out of trouble, but inevitably someone will sign a contract in the back of a napkin excitedly and it's got poor drafting and 10 years later they're in a big litigation which is costing them tens of thousands a month and they're looking at you kind of in bewilderment but you know you're just trying to steer them through it and either settle it or leverage the position as aggressively as you can for the most efficient resolution you can but I think you're you're absolutely right that they're 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 pretty surprised by that stuff and we you know New York and Delaware are a bit like London in that they you know, it's a choice of law that's very common. And um, so they sort of, I think on the one hand, they appreciate that the judges can't be bought. There are bright line rules and they should have a decent idea of what outcomes should be in litigation. But I think the expense and length of time it can take, you know, New York, you, I don't have to tell you, Jerry, you know, Manhattan Supreme Court, which is our state court, can be a lot slower than someone might think. Federal courts might move a lot faster, but it's, uh, you know, they need a guide at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, could you throw out for the listening audience some examples of some matters that have come in from abroad that your firm has handled both on the litigation and transactional side? For sure. I'll start out with a couple of disputes in the last couple of years. We had two fairly large disputes. Uh, last year, we had a patent matter. Um, I think the IP litigation and patent stuff is something that you know maybe some companies in other markets don't realize quite the might of you know Delaware courts and um, the leverage and, and barriers to the marketplace that can happen if you're caught in an infringement situation and you can lose and potentially lose access to the U.S. market, which could be cataclysmic for some clients and products. So we, we had a matter like that involving a Korean plaintiff. Our client was British, but the, the case was brought in Delaware. And fortunately, after six to nine months, the case settled and it was a good outcome for our client. We had another one where, again, we had a client that had a they manufactured beverages in the UK and they were selling into the US. It was a big piece of their market. And they unfortunately had signed a pretty horrendous distribution agreement with a clause that basically said, okay, if you terminate us as your distributor, you're going to pay you know, $10 a case or whatever over the lifetime of the agreement, which I think at that point was something like 12 years. So it's this $4 million issue all of a sudden that nobody saw coming. And I think that's a great example, granted a rather extreme one, 
of getting that distribution agreement looked at and drafted properly in the first place because you can see what can happen. And that one's in federal court still and in the discovery phase right now. On the cross-border side, we get a lot of set-up organically stuff. You know, clients just looking for us to say, maybe it's a marketing business or, you know, could be could be anything really. And a lot of ours are from Ireland, UK, Australia, Western Europe. And they may be setting up in the US and they need some tax advice around a subsidiary, LLC, corporation. How does US employment work? Any template employment agreements? I better clear my trademark for aforementioned reasons. You want to make sure your IP is free and clear here. And then prosecute the trademark and file it probably. Contracts, Americanizing your contracts. A US contract looks, as you know, Jerry, a lot more, there's a lot more disclaiming of liability and no consequential damages and no warranty of any particular purpose. And the, those, these are born of our, our, our rather more litigious environment in that you want to disclaim as much liability as possible. Contracts in Europe don't necessarily look quite like that. So you're Americanizing those. We're doing visa and immigration work for clients. They want to bring executives over, bring their families on visas, then get green cards sometimes. Those are classic setups for us. And you also get M&A, right, which is, which is great because you can get a foreign buyer of a U.S. target that offers better speed to market for a client or, or, or a company, right? They don't have to sit and set it up and do it all from scratch. It's like they're, you're sitting in the middle of the lake in the rowboat and you've got to start rowing, right? Whereas if you buy a, a boat that's already moving, you're going to have better market penetration, speed to market revenues. Of course, you're going to pay more, a bit more in legal fees for that probably, and you're also going to have to pay the purchase price. But there are structures, you know, earnouts, pay over time, deal points. We talk about more, but yeah, we we do quite a bit of M and A in the small and middle market. So, and it's often cross border, and sometimes it's US buying UK. We had uh, Microsoft buy a UK client of ours last year. Now, there's a lot of issues as you cross borders and you get into different geographic markets, like the Latino clients of mine. They sometimes don't pay as close attention to the written agreement because they, you know, in their culture, it's more about the handshake and, and, the, and they'll work around an oral resolution if they want to change the terms. You sue a client in China, it's very difficult to collect. So I'm sure you encounter some of those issues. I remember early when I started my firm, I rep- represented a couple of watch companies and some jewelry companies. And the jewelry companies were moving like $16 million worth of diamonds like out of Antwerp into New York. Guy with a, you know, he's got a little bracelet on and a little handcuff to the suitcase or whatever. And I'm like, well, guys, what's the contract? I'm like, oh, no, we trust him. Don't worry. You know what I mean? And that, 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 those guys, they just do it all on a handshake. And it's remarkable. You're thinking you need to do security in the goods and file a UCC or at least have some paperwork. But as you said, they just kind of act on trust. And I think where it gets dicey is if there is a dispute, you know, the likes of you or I get involved and, and you're, you're trying to make sense of it all. Yes. Now, I will tell you one area where some of my clients have gotten very confused is, and maybe this is the same in Scotland, the British system of barristers and solicitors. Maybe you could break that down for our listening audience. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit far removed from it now because I came here so long ago. But uh, yeah, traditionally, we have a divided legal profession, both in England and in Scotland. There's slightly different terms, but in the Scotland and England, the practicing lawyer in an office environment who does kind of you know, buys and sells a property for a client or does some contracts, maybe a business lawyer. Those are solicitors. And in the high courts of England, you have barristers. And in Scotland, they're called advocates. And that is a divided profession. And it actually can be a little, I think, a little cumbersome at times because you're dealing with paying two sets of lawyers in a big dispute sometimes. But there are some very expert upper court advocates that 
you know, probably, probably are worth the money. It's an interesting system and it's a, very different from our system, I think. And in, in terms of the culture and even the style of delivery, I think American advocacy and lawyering is, is more direct, which is kind of our culture. In the UK might be a little bit more roundabout, a little bit more flowery, a bit more, dare I say, long-winded, whereas we are a bit more direct, both in our advocacy, I think, in courts and also the way a, a, a contract is drafted in the US is, in my opinion, so much better. I realize I sound like a turncoat for saying that, but like it's just so much more clear and direct. And I think that, that our persuasive writing is, I, I think, you know, some of the US law, I think US lawyers, you know, New York, LA, these markets and, and elsewhere are some of the best in the world. I really do. Yes. And this is a talking point I want to address right here is that sometimes you're a US company and you realize, oh my God, I have an international matter. I can't go looking for a cost-effective barrister or solicitor, and I need to hire Latham and Watkins and be charged, you know, God knows how much money and have a bill that is, you know, disproportionate to the amount of work done. The truth is, is that if you work through people like Alan, who have a a set of relations over in the UK, uh, you'll find boutique barristers and solicitors who can talk to you about price points, capping their fees, and making it a cost-effective experience. So don't think just because you're going across the sea or into another country that you have to hire one of these huge international law firms. All they're going to do is give you huge international bills. <laughs> right, Alan? No, I think you're right. I mean, part of it as a GC, perhaps, or as a, as a company owner or founder, uh, is navigating, right? And and that's what we help our clients do in, in markets. And a lot of that is people we've worked with before, networks, former colleagues that you might ask. And there's a lot of really good people with that big law experience. And that, uh, I know, not, not something people don't really know, but, you know, they've gone to the good schools, they've pulled those big hours at the big firm, but they are now at smaller, more boutique players. And I typically can get a response from someone inside of 12 to 24 hours, depending on the, uh, the time difference. And we've worked in these markets so much. And we, we also, I think you're right that the, the easiest thing to do is just like call fresh fields because you know you've got an office everywhere. But I also think that not only the cost, but sometimes the quality can vary quite considerably. And some of these places, they'll just buy a firm, you know, in Peru, but that firm doesn't, how does that firm share the culture of head office in New York or whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. So again, you know, my message throughout these podcasts is that you find a lawyer in the U.S. you can trust, you talk to them about price points and budgets, and they guide you in the direction that you should. You should never, no matter how big your company, especially if you're publicly owned and you have shareholders, just hire one of these behemoth companies that are going to shove bills uh, your way that are preposterous. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is you know, I know Alan, he's a very, very sharp business person. And as a result, you know, he knows how to hire lawyers and deliver an efficient result. Maybe you can share with the audience, because they've certainly heard it from me and the other lawyers. What are some of the things you do to make sure that you don't have these out of control bills and that you hire and direct efficient lawyers in your firm? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, there probably are times that the big company is probably going to go to the big firm and say, look, it's bet the company stuff. And a lot of our smaller players will suffer from that sort of buy IBM syndrome that everyone talks about, where it's like, look, I hired such and such law firm here. You can't blame me, right? If it goes wrong, 
And it's like, who's this Jerry Fox guy that made a mistake? You know, that's what we were, we're butting our heads against a lot all the time. Not that Jerry would ever make a mistake, but we're talking about efficiency. I mean, our firm, we try and staff at lean. We had about, we, we sold a company a couple of years ago in the Valley to Samsung. And we were against one of the big firms. I wouldn't say the name because there's wonderful lawyers at these big firms as well. And it basically, there was a $10 million transaction, very small, by the, certainly by Samsung standards. And we had um, a client that was pretty much out of gas. And he was just like, look, if I don't do this deal, I'm out of business next month kind of thing. And I'm like, well, let's not tell them that. you know. And we're talking about $10 million transaction. We have the big firm on the other side who I think we, we had one lawyer on it because we had to agree a flat fee for that M&A deal because he couldn't agree to anything else. And we did it on the basis of, okay, you can't get tax and you can't get this and you can't get that unless you pay hourly. But our one deal lawyer will give it to you for this number. And, and he'll get it done. And he's like, okay, good. And they had, we had one lawyer and the big firm had nine. They had nine lawyers on that deal. And so when you look at rate, that's one side of the coin, but you also got to look at staffing because you can get absolutely soaked on staffing. And I think that th- these are things that you're looking out for for clients. If you're going to bring in local counsel, you want to make sure it's that probably that senior associate that can do everything the partner can do with very limited partner involvement. And they've they're judicious with their time and because when you've got a local council issue, they're often paying the bill of our time too. So you want your client to have as little incremental spend, but with the local expertise, whether that's the court somewhere in Kansas because you're in a different state or internationally, it's a similar principle. Yeah, and there's things to look out for. In Delaware, it's a very small bar. They're very protective and they know all the cases because of the place of business or the venue clauses that are there have to run through Delaware. And for expedited hearings, I don't know if many of you know this, but it's an unwritten rule in Delaware that they'll they'll charge you one and a half times your hourly rate. It's a premium that they just pay, that they just make you pay. And they're proud to tell you that, you know, if you don't pay it, good luck go down the street, but their brethren is going to charge you the same thing. I agree. And we've got, of course, like you, I'm sure, we have a good friend, law firm down there, who's helped us on Delaware Matters, who is, you know, you're, part of what the client is paying for, I guess, is the connections and the experience, right? Because had they gone to knock on the door, they wouldn't know, of course, that Delaware is doing that. And they, they have rules in Delaware that mean that, you know, local guys have to be there at hearings and things, whereas, you know, that's not the same in every state. And they're protective. Yes, very protective. I would say, and my, my uh, listening audience has heard this. Court of Chancery is set up with a bunch of judges that understand operating agreements, boards of directors, uh, breach of fiduciary duty claims. They handle books and records where you need to get your hands on financial statements. They're very, very good. But you will have to hire either a Delaware firm directly or if you have uh, lawyers who are better trial lawyers that you have a closer experience with, they're going to have to hire some of these as local counsel. They are required to basically read every one of your briefs and to come to every one of the hearings, and you're going to get larger bills from the Delaware law firms. In fact, our firm is 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 looking to hire someone and open its own office in Delaware so that we can we can eliminate that concern. But you know, again, knowing your jurisdiction and having a lawyer who knows the different jurisdictions and what you'll run into is very important. Now, the other thing is deal making and uh, papering a transaction M and A which is very important, and Alan's firm does this as well, which is very important for all of you in the audience to know that you can come and sell and buy a company through Alan's firm. You know, when I was at the big firm that employed me before I went out on my own, you'd look in these big conference rooms and you'd see like, I don't know, 20 people and stacks of papers that were huge, 
maybe you can get us inside the process of an M&A deal. For sure. I mean, we find ourselves on the sell side and the buy side. Uh, sometimes there's an international element, sometimes there isn't. It's often intrastate, though, if it's not international. And we find ourselves, you know, on the sell side, some of it's about readiness for sale. And also, quite often, it's a, it's a first-time seller. It's their first rodeo, if you will. And they've built this maybe $50 million company, and they're selling it for a lot of money. But it, they've never been through a transaction. So that's, again, where you're a bit of a guide and maybe talking them off a ledge and maybe navigating for them what's really important, what isn't. You know, once they've made their own decisions about cultural fit and if this is the right buyer, things like earnouts are always tricky. That's always a big issue about whether they'll actually get any money after the closing because they'll say, oh, I get another $5 million a year for two or three years. And, you know, the, the, the reality is the earnout does not always happen at all. And, Jerry, you've probably been involved in some disputes over earnouts. You know, you're, you're sort of navigating there and clean up stuff, you know, getting rid of litigation, making sure cap tables are clean. Do they have solid financials? Is there any clouds on the IP or anything else that's important? Also, just trying to be a business person about it. Like, what's important here? And on the buy side, a client might say, you know, this is strategic for us. We really just want to buy the clients. If they're just buying the clients, then they're really caring about it. if there's sticky contracts, is it is a third party you know, assignment language, is any of that going to be difficult to get consent? They don't care about the IP. They may care about the employees a bit, but they're really about the clients. So understanding the weighting of priority for the buy side client is, is, is interesting and important also. And they're concerned with the same things. They want to get value. They don't want to be led astray. They want appropriate due diligence. They you know, don't want any surprises. They might be financing the deal as well. So you're sort of dealing with a layer of borrowing as well as uh, not all deals are self-funded completely and um yeah so we were fairly active in that sort of, sort of small middle market m&a space which probably for us is a 10 to 150 million dollar mark somewhere in there you know in terms of enterprise value yeah well you know ladies and gentlemen out there in that audience now you've heard from alan he's talked to you about our system of justice and how it's seen by foreigners you've heard him talk about how the systems of justice in other countries are layered differently. You've heard me talk about the importance of finding a good lawyer here to be your seeing eye dog and bringing you into that system so you don't get soaked or fleeced. You've heard that Alan does his type of international work and the types of cases he handles and the big M&A work up to a certain point. You know, he's not going to handle transactions over a certain point. And obviously, he's got a business background. If you talk to him, he talks like a business person, which is very important because you want someone who thinks like a business person, you know, because they can help, you know, you go through due diligence, which is a very important aspect of a buyer or sale. So, Alan, before we wrap this, I'd like you to tell the audience very carefully how they can get in touch with you. You know, how they get to your website, what's your email address, what's the best phone number to reach you at. Oh, thanks, Jerry. Yeah. Well, we're www.runinemo.com. My last name and then John Nemo is, he's, what is it? Nancy Indigo Monty Monty Orange. That's runinemo.com. We're at 212-545-8022 in Manhattan. And my email address is alan.rooney at runinemo.com. So that's Rooney like Mickey Rooney, for those of you who remember Mickey Rooney. Or Wayne Rooney, if you're a soccer person. And then Alan is Alpha Larry Larry Alpha Nancy. Slightly unusual spelling. My mother assures me it is the Scottish spelling. So there you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a man who has offices, as you've heard, in Scotland and in the UK, the United States, uh, that they really are active all over the place. And they're very efficient. They peg themselves to be a provider of value to you 
the client. And with that, Alan, I'm going to thank you for stepping in and educating the GCs, the law students, the business owners. Again, if you listen to this podcast, you're getting names and numbers and email addresses and website information for people who are dedicated to the client and to find value for you. So don't just pick up the phone and call any firm or the biggest firm or a firm that your friend on a golf course says, hey, these guys are good for me. Because what you really want to do is you want to find the people who are committed to you know, adding value. Alan, uh, thank you for being on this segment. Jerry, thanks very much for having me. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.